Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Samuel, chapter 17, verses 38 through 50, and can be found on page 228 in the Pew Bible. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I am not used to them. So David removed them. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in his shepherd's bag in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. The Philistine came on and drew near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. When the Philistine drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, striking down the Philistine and killing him. There was no sword in David's hand. This is the word of God for the people of God. Good morning, church. My name is Rob Lau. I'm one of the pastors here at Ebenezer, and this morning I want to talk to you about the fact that throughout the course of our lives, all of us face some giants. Yep, all of us do. And they can be big and nasty and mean, and they go by names like addiction and anger and fear. Today we are going to study the most famous story about a giant in history. My hope is that by the time we leave here today, we're going to be convinced of a couple of things. First of all, that our giants are more vulnerable than we would have believed. And secondly, that we will learn something about God and the way God created the world that will help us walk from this place with the assurance that our giants will fall. So as we study the story of David and Goliath, something that we need to know is that there there are really kind of two ways that people have historically interpreted this story. One way to interpret the story is, the most common way is, is to believe that God had been with David in some special way, and because of God's remarkable intervention, David won. We see God's intervention all throughout the Bible. We saw it last week with the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah was outnumbered 450 to 1, but his cause was just. God intervened. God sent the fire. There are no doubts 
That God intervenes in this world at times, circumnavigating the natural order so that goodness and righteousness will prevail. And the truth is, there are some giants that only God can take down. But here's my question. Is the story of David and Goliath a story of miraculous intervention? Or is it something else? Hear me. I'm not asking whether God is able to intervene miraculously. Of course God can and God does. There are some giants only God can slay. I'm asking if that's what happened here. I want to suggest that maybe there's a different way that we understand this story that could could help us slay some giants in our lives. And to, to talk about that, I want to begin by telling you a story. There's a guy by the name of Vivek Renadive. This is his picture. Vivek Renadive was born in Mumbai, in India, in poverty. And when he was 17 years old, he received a scholarship to go to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, one of the most widely respected schools of engineering in the world. So he matriculated to MIT, he started a software company, and today he's a billionaire. Several times over, in fact. But kind of the least interesting thing about his story is the rags to riches part of it, going from being born in poverty in Mumbai to becoming a billionaire here, fine. But here's the part of his story I connect with a little bit more. He has some children. His youngest daughter's name is Anjali, and Anjali decided that she wanted to play basketball with her friends when she was 12, and they wanted to play, you know, basketball. Uh, some of you will identify with this. The kids wanted to play basketball, but there wasn't a coach. So Vivek Renadi found himself named the new coach of his daughter's basketball team. Now, the interesting part of the story is this. <laughs> Until his daughter decided she wanted to play basketball and he became the coach, he had never watched a basketball game in his life. Uh, and so he started to watch basketball. And the way basketball was played drove him crazy. Let me explain. Basketball courts are 94 feet long. 94 feet from, from one baseline to the other baseline. 94 feet long. But if you ever watch a basketball game, the way basketball is traditionally played is that one team scores, they make a basket, they, they run all the way back to their end of the court and turn around and prepare to defend. If you watch a basketball game, it's 94 feet long, but statistically, teams only defend the last 24 feet of the basketball court. Vivek grew up playing soccer, and this drove him crazy. Because in soccer, you defend the entire field. Can you imagine, let's, let's put this in football terms, because the football season is upon, upon us. Let the church say amen. Yeah. Can you imagine the football team getting together and saying, listen guys, here's our strategy. We're only going to defend from the 25-yard line back to our end zone. They would get crushed. They'd get crushed. That's the way that Vivek saw this, this game of basketball. He could not understand why teams would concede 75% of the court. So, he changed tactics. He changed the rules. His basketball team had eight girls on it. Two of them had played basketball before. Six of them had never held a basketball in their hands. Which is what makes it so interesting that in his first year of coaching these 12-year-olds, he took them to the national championship. How? He tried some new tactics. He changed the rules. 
Instead of allowing the team to throw, the other team to throw the ball in and dribble leisurely up the court, he instituted something called a full court press. In basketball, a team has five seconds. So after the other team scores, you've got five seconds to inbound the ball. And if you can't throw the ball into play within five seconds, the other team gets the ball. Vivek Renadive's team was so good at playing this full court press, at playing defense the entire length of the court, that they go out to 20 or 30 point leads, 20 or 30 to nothing, before the other team could even get the ball inbounds. That's how good they were. And if the team did get the ball inbounds, they pressured them all the way down the court. The girls were throwing the ball away to his team, and they would then have a largely uncontested high percentage shot. And you might ask yourself, wait a minute. If, it, if it's so successful to do this full court press, why don't teams do it all the time? Well, there's a reason. It's exhausting. Absolutely exhausting. I, I played center for my high school basketball team. My coach once described me as very, very average. My job in the full court press, those times that we instituted the full court, my job was to stand back underneath our basket. Everybody else had to run around. I loved press. I loved it. I loved it. But I'd, all I had to do was stand there. I was the chubby guy that tried to stop people if they got past everybody else. Why don't they play it? Why don't more teams institute a full court press? Because it is exhausting. And this, this is where the first lesson from the story of David and Goliath begins to co- coalesce for us. And here it is. Effort can trump ability if we are willing to be exhausted. Effort can trump ability if we are willing to be exhausted. When David tries to fight like Goliath, Goliath will whip him. But if David tries something else, if he gives it his all... There was a social scientist named Ivan Toft. He did some research in which he examined wars from the last 200 years. And he found that when wars were fought according to conventional tactics, if wars were fought according to kind of the same tactics, if both sides fought the same way, over 70% of the time, the bigger and more powerful country won the war. Saul tried to convince David to fight Goliath using conventional tactics. He said, put on my helmet, put on my, my, my armor, put on my sword. The problem is that when David did those things, he couldn't move. So, so David tried to do something else. When David tries to fight like Goliath, David loses. But here's what else Toft found. He found that in instances where the underdog fought unconventionally, Their success rate went from 28.5% to 63.8%. In other words, when David doesn't play according to Goliath's rules, when David is willing to employ new tactics and willing to put forth tremendous effort, David beats Goliath two out of three times. What Toft found is when David employs new tactics and puts forth maximum effort, David will beat Goliath two out of three times. Let's talk about the story itself for just a moment. 
There is uh, no general consensus about how tall Goliath was. On the shorter end, he was at least six feet nine inches tall. By a frame of reference, I'm six four. So I would have looked relatively small compared to him, if you can imagine me ever looking small. Uh, Goliath suffered from a condition called acromegaly. And very likely he suffered from this condition, acromegaly. And uh, somebody else that you may know suffered from acromegaly. His name is Andre the Giant. This is a picture of the wrestler, Andre the Giant. Now, he's wrestling a, a very large human being there, but the very large human being doesn't look next, doesn't look very big because he's standing next to, you know, a giant. Uh, and so that's Andre the Giant. And if you're still not interested because he's a wrestler, this is also a picture of Andre the Giant. Yeah. My wife's very favorite movie, The Princess Bride. And uh, he, he was the giant in The Princess Bride. So now that I have everybody's attention, let me tell you about this thing called acromegaly. See, acromegaly is this condition in which you grow really big and really strong, but there are some side effects to it, some drawbacks to it. One of the drawbacks of acromegaly is that people with acromegaly tend to have poor eyesight. It's quite possible that this is why Goliath was accompanied by a shield bearer because when people would throw spears at him and shoot arrows at him, he couldn't see them coming. So he had a shield bearer in front of him and his job was to catch the stuff coming at Goliath. But also, not only were people who suffered with acromegaly, not only did they have poor eyesight, but they also tended not to be uh, terribly adept at, at quick movements. Their, their feet just kind of shuffle along. So on the one hand, you've got this, this guy who's huge and he's strong, but he can't see well and he can't move swiftly. That's Goliath. Now let's talk about David. Let's look at, at 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 48. When the Philistine drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle to meet the Philistine. Something that brings this into focus for us is this. When Philistines fought each other in one-on-one combat, their process was that you kind of stand in the middle of a circle, and both fighters, they, they would touch swords, and then they would start to fight. It's like at the beginning of a boxing match, come out, touch gloves, and then you can start to fight. If David had fought Goliath that way, Goliath would have destroyed him. David chose a different tactic. Verse 49, David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank to his forehead and he fell down to the ground. This is a picture of a sling like David would have used back in the 10th century BC in the ancient Near East. The way that the sling works is that you, you hold both, both ends of the leather strap and you spin it around. And at a certain point you, you let go of one strap and, and the, the stone comes out. That's how the sling works. Now, a proficient slinger would be able to spin this thing about six to seven times per second. That equates to 400 revolutions per minute. A stone fired from a sling coming out at 400 revolutions per minute could go 400 meters. That's four and a half football fields. It came out of the sling traveling 900 feet per second. A stone the size of a quarter fired from a sling like this has the same stopping power as a nine millimeter bullet. Now let's think about the story again. On the one hand, you've got a guy who's big and strong, but he can't see and he can't move. On the other hand, you've got a kid packing a nine millimeter. Now who should win? This understanding of David and Goliath, it's not intended to take God out of the equation. It's intended to help us understand how God created the world, church. 
A world in which if we are willing to put forth maximum effort, if we are willing to try new tactics, David whips Goliath two out of three times. Our giants can fall. If we give great effort, if we try new things, said differently, God created us to slay giants and put us in an environment in which giants can be slain. One of the giants that faces all of us is the challenge of preparing our next generation of leaders for this world. Spiritual leaders, military leaders, scientific leaders, industry leaders, educators. They're seated in this room, by the way, the next generation of leaders who are going to lead our country and our communities. This past week, at Stafford County Schools, thousands of them returned to the classroom. It's because of the importance of this task, the Herculean effort required to prepare our next generation that Ebenezer has drawn a line in the sand. One of our four strategic initiatives associated with our Focus 2025 vision is increased involvement in our local schools. So just a few things for you to note. Last year, Ebenezer spent, sent 130 backpacks to our local schools. This year, we upped it to 170. Good on you, church. Well done. Um, this year, uh, Moncure and Hampton Oak Elementary Schools were the two schools that we focused on. Volunteers from Ebenezer went to Hampton Oaks. We went to Moncure. We helped teachers set up their rooms and prepare their rooms for kids to come back. We also helped that at Head Start, at Hearts Head Start location. At Hampton Oaks Elementary School, we provided lunch and gift cards and a mountain of school supplies to the teachers. At Moncure Elementary School, we sent an ice cream truck. We gave uh, gift cards to those teachers as well. But I want to tell you about two very special initiatives we we're participating in. With the recent redistricting, redistricting happens from time to time, with recent redistricting, Moncure Elementary School found itself facing a bit of a crisis. You see, they are the elementary school in our community with the largest number of students on free and reduced lunch. Said differently, the highest number of economically disadvantaged children go to Moncure Elementary School. It's a bit of a giant that they are facing. So what effort has Ebenezer given to help them face their giant? A couple of things. First... As we've talked about before, the average teacher spends a lot of money out of their pocket to get their rooms ready for their children and to provide school supplies for themselves and for the kids. I asked Mr. Greg Mackey, the principal at Moncure Elementary School, if he would give Ebenezer a little bit of space inside the school so that we could make regularly needed school supplies available for teachers. And I'm proud to announce that we've approved an initial grant of $5,000 to outfit that supply room so that those teachers don't have to take that money out of their own pocket, but they can pick up those school supplies right there at their school free of charge. Let the church say amen to that one. Yeah, okay. One of the other things Mr. Mackey told me is that... uh, One of the problems that they were facing, uh, given their population, is that a number of the parents of their students don't speak English. Not the children. Children are learning English every single day in schools, but their parents. And so he said, you know, parents will come and they'll come for our orientation. They'll come meet their teachers and and the parents will say um, uh, to their kids, their kindergartner on the way home, hey, uh, what did they just say? I think we can agree that's not the best ideal form for communication between parents and teachers, right, Uh, is through a kindergartner. I have a kindergartner, and I can tell you that if I asked my kindergartner what did the teacher say, and she knew I didn't know what the teacher said, it would be something like, she said, put a lot of money on my card so I can get ice cream every day. It's essential to the education process. 
So we uh, we found this system. It's a, it's a suitcase full of these little iPod things. And what happens is that somebody puts one of these lanyards around their neck and they put this, put this thing in their ear and while the principal or the teacher is speaking, a translator is, is speaking into a microphone that the person is hearing real time in their ears. It's like the United Nations at Moncure Elementary School now. It's pretty cool. Imagine the difference. Imagine the difference just that, that one change could make. It helps families to become increasingly involved in the educational process and supporting their Students, their children. Brothers and sisters, the, the point is that giants will fall if we're committed enough to put in the effort and creative enough to try new tactics. So let's talk about effort for a moment. Brain Builders is an amazing, one of the best ministries we do here at Ebenezer Church. It's in Brain Builders that we connect with some of the sweetest and most beautiful and frankly at-risk children in Stafford County. We provide love and care and a snack and tutoring to help them with their homework. And if you might be willing to do the one thing it takes to help make a difference in a child's life, the one thing, put in a little extra effort. If you might be willing to give that extra effort, next Sunday after worship, after this service, over in room 101, there's an information session for those who might be interested in being tutors this year to some of the most beautiful and at-risk children here in Stafford County. Just a little bit of effort can fell those giants. But the other thing we have to do is new tactics. This week, I'm going to be meeting with a number of, of folks from the, the school system. Uh, at each, each age range has its own director for the school system. I'm meeting with all of those directors this week, and I get to tell them first how grateful we are for them and for their teams and for the Herculean efforts that they're undertaking to help raise these next generation of leaders. But here's the other thing I get to tell them. I get to tell them that Ebenezer Church is deeply committed to trying to help to solve the problem of teacher retention in Stafford County. I, I, don't, I don't know... What tactic we'll settle on for Ebenezer to help with this issue of teacher retention? But here's, here's what I do know. When our teachers feel more appreciated and supported, they are more likely to perform well in the classroom and they are more likely to stay in the school system, but it will require new tactics. When God's people employ maximum effort and new tactics, giants fall because that is the way God created the world. So here's the question. What's the giant in your life? What is it? Yes, there are some giants that only God can take down. But most of the time, most of the time, most of the time, God calls us to great effort and new tactics. Just one final thought about this story of David and Goliath. What happens... If in my heart of hearts, I know that the organization I'm a part of, that I'm, I'm working with or volunteering with or, or that I work for, what if I know in my heart of hearts that that organization looks a lot more like Goliath than it does David? It's big and maybe it's been strong in the past, but it doesn't move very quickly, responding to st- outside stimuli, and it doesn't have great vision How can I help the organization I'm serving, the people I'm working with, how can I help them become more like David than Goliath? Well, I just want to share something that I learned this year at the Global Leadership Summit. There was a speaker by the name of Liz Bohannon. She wrote a book called Beginner's Pluck. And she talked about uh, four phases of the skills development process. I want to walk you through how this works. 
So what she said is, when we want, when we try to learn a new skill, we go through these four phases. The first phase is unconscious incompetence. What's that mean? It means I'm so bad at something, I don't even know how bad I am at that thing. I'm unconscious of how inco- incompetent I am. If you were to ask my family, they would probably tell you, that's where I am with my guitar playing. Unconscious and incompetent, I think is a fair estimation of it. Then the second stage we move to is called conscious incompetence. We become aware of how bad we are at something. But stage three, we work at that thing, we work at it, we work at it, and we move into that third stage called conscious competence. We start to become good at it, and we know we're good at it. But then there's stage four. Stage four is what's called unconscious competence. And unconscious competence means I'm so good at doing this thing, I could quite literally do it in my sleep. Most of us, I think, work for most of our lives to try and get to that fourth stage, unconscious competence, where we're so good at it, it's not even a challenge anymore. You know what the problem is with that? When we stop being challenged, we lose our agility, we lose our creativity, And what Elizabeth Hannon suggested is, if we want to be the kind of people who are constantly making this world a better place, we've got to do something that is going to hurt a little bit. The problem with stage four, unconscious competence, is that it's in stage four, we become like Goliath. Slow. We lack vision. And what we have to do is we have to intentionally begin to engage a new practice that's going to take us back to stage two. When we know we are bad at doing this new thing. And it's hard because we don't like to learn new skills. And it's hard because we don't like being bad at things. But here's the amazing thing about being in stage two. It's in stage two that maximum effort and the development of new tactics emerge that allow us to fell the next giant. If you are interested in learning more about these ideas, I want to recommend two resources for you today. The first is a book called David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. It's a great book. The second is, uh, I mentioned a few minutes ago, it's Liz Bohannon's Beginner's Pluck. It's not going to be available until October 1st, but you can pre-order it now. In the weeks to come, we're going to discuss some of the giants in our lives. Things like fear and comfort, anger and addiction. What we need to know is that God is more powerful than the giants we face. Sometimes God alone can whip our giants. But here's something else we need to know. Most of the time, most of the time, God doesn't defeat giants for us. Most of the time, God defeats them with us. We have to be willing to fight. Great effort. New tactics. And then watch as to the glory of God, our giants will fall. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, I know people in this room face giants because sometimes I face them. And they inspire fear and anxiety. 
But God, we give you thanks that you are greater than all the giants we could ever face. We give you thanks that you are greater, oh God. But you don't tell us to sit back on the couch and, and let us, let you do the work for us. So often you invite us onto the field. You invite us to, to give all that we have. You invite us to try new things. You partner with us in the defeating of these giants. And for that we give you thanks. God, we ask that you would give us courage in those times when we feel as if we can't try new things, in those times where we feel as if we have nothing left to give, give us new courage and new insight and new strength and new resolve. Help us to trust in you and find that when we engage in a worthwhile endeavor, the transformation of your world, when we give all that we are and are willing to try new things, that the giants around us will begin to fall. And we'll be able to sing our praises to you, the God who has conquered our fears, our addictions, our grief, our anger, our comfort, and all the giants we'll ever face. We pray these things with great expectation because we pray them in the name of Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen.